Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast providing in-depth analysis and coverage of your favorite Milwaukee Brewers by Peter and David Go. Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I'm your host, Peter Go. Alongside here, David. Excited to be back. It's been a long time coming and a lot to cover. Brewers, of course, continuing to roll on and one of the best seasons of all time in franchise history. Really, you know, in all cases, firing in all cylinders and excited to break down, you know, is this really the Brewers' best team ever today as well as take a look at, you know, what the last couple of weeks have looked at. So, David, what are your opening thoughts today? We're certainly in a good spot. A very bad loss against Philadelphia today, but that's okay. Just one game. We saw one of these in the St. Louis series, and they were able to recover. Still win two out of three. Of course, the Brewers in an excellent place up 11 games in the division, which is actually the highest that they have ever had a lead in franchise history. So overall, the team really firing on all cylinders, like you had said, and looking forward to kind of getting the regular season out of the way almost. The Brewers are in a spot that's kind of unique to them in that they basically have their spot locked up already not really playing for much other than that they need to get ready for the playoffs. Even the teams that are better than them, the Dodgers, the Giants, the Rays, all have better records than them, but they're still fighting because they have teams that are uh, right below them. Of course, Dodgers, Giants battling directly with each other, but the Brewers don't really have that. So they have the luxury of being able to um, take it a little bit slower with Adames, who landed back on the injured list. Freddie Peralta, they skipped a couple starts while he dealt with a, a little bit of a shoulder inflammation. He didn't come back very strong, but uh, just one start. Uh, Garcia, they've been taking slowly after a, a day-to-day injury. So the Brewers do have that luxury, looking good, um, looking like they're kind of getting ready for the playoffs, and I am excited for the playoffs to come. Yeah, absolutely. It should be should be really fun to watch this Brewers team in the playoffs. And just to recap over the last couple of weeks, uh, even – you know, looking at the series that they did play, uh, starting with St. Louis, um, they took care of business against St. Louis, Washington, and Cincinnati. Um, did lose series against Minnesota. Had a, a good series against the Giants. Of course, that happening in San Francisco. Brewers showing that they could play with the Giants. Uh, and then again, the St. Louis Cardinals final series here uh, just earlier this weekend. Of course, we had the exciting walk-off Grand Slam. We had the Adrian Hauser complete game shutout, which I'm sure, as many of you have heard, first time, in seven years, the Brewers have had a starting pitcher throw a complete game shutout, uh, a bit of a dinosaur at this point. And then, of course, uh, game one of that game, which, of course, we happen to go to of all games of the Cardinals series, Brewers taking a beating, like you said, Freddie Peralta in his first start back. But again, really strong first couple weeks. And before we get in further, David, what is today's trivia question? Today's trivia question has to do with Uh, The Baseball Hall of Fame, they are going to do the induction ceremony on Wednesday at 1230 Central Time. It'll be streamed on MLB Network, taking place in Cooperstown. And one of the inductees is a former Brewer, Ted Simmons, the former catcher, uh, kind of the anchor of that 82 team, the leader, a veteran who had been around a while. Um, And he ended up having a very good career. He was kind of towards the tail end of his career with the Brewers. Uh, But including Simmons, how many players are in the Hall of Fame who have played for the Brewers at one point in their careers? So this only includes players, uh, not counting Bud Selig here, not counting Bob Euchre, who's in the broadcaster's wing. But how many Hall of Fame players uh, have played for the Brewers? Um, That's today's trivia question. That includes Ted Simmons again. So he would be one of them uh, in in the question. We also have a random player of the day today. Uh, Many of you might have read the article on The Athletic about Dan Vogelback and his walk-off Grand Slam and kind of his role now as a pinch hitter, comparing it to the great Matt Stairs, who is maybe the gold standard of pinch hitters. He kind of played in that perfect era where there was a little bit more specialization on the bench, uh, including being almost a a pinch hitting specialist. Um, And he did it very well. He did have a few years where he was an everyday player early in his career. Uh, in his his late 20s with Oakland. He actually got some MVP votes in 99 uh, on base of 366 and slugged 533. Uh, But then kind of as he got a little bit older, morphed into a part-time player and a pinch hitter as well. Played 2002 with the Brewers, where in 107 games, 315 plate appearances, hit 244, 
349 on base, 478 slugging, 16 home runs, 41 RBIs in a part-time role. Uh, and then bounced around after that, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, Texas, Detroit, Toronto, Philadelphia, where he did win a World Series in 2008, and then wrapped up his career with the Padres and Nationals. But Stairs is kind of used as the uh, synonymously with the pinch hitter. Stairs ended up having a very good career, carving out a role as a part-time player. And Vogelback could be someone who has a similar similar career. And that's definitely the role that he's in with the Brewers right now. Telez playing pretty well still and manning first base on an everyday basis. But having a bat like Vogelback off the bench, of course, we saw it on Sunday with the walk-off Grand Slam. First pinch hit walk-off Grand Slam in Brewers history. But he really is that perfect pinch hit role. Uh, Vogelback, and I wanted to hearken back to Matt Stairs uh, as we started today's episode. Yeah, I think that is a, a pretty good comparison. I know that I always jokingly bring up Russell Brannion. I couldn't tell you the year that this happened. I believe it was a Twins game, Brewers Twins. Yeah, Brewers Twins uh, at Miller Park years years and years ago, back when the Brewers had Russell Brannion. Ned Yost was the manager, and I believe Brewers were maybe down two, I want to say. One runner on, two outs in the ninth, and Yost just kind of goes for it, pinch, pinch hits Russell Brannion into the game, hits a two-run shot, which is, of course, what Yost was hoping for. Brewers tied it up. I believe they ended up losing it in extras, but that was that memory sort of seared in our minds, so we kind of jokingly bring that up. And I do see Vogelback as definitely an asset off the bench. Of course, lefty, good power, and you know did exactly what the Brewers were hoping for uh, the other day and was really capitalized on what may have been one of the Brewers' you know best wins of the year. Um, I know that a lot of people were sort of saying the, the peak of the year so far for the Brewers. Hopefully, of course, not the peak um, as we go forward, but certainly a fun game to watch. And Matt Stairs, there's your random player of the day today. So like I said, Brewers, you know, is this the, Bre the best Brewers team that we've ever seen? Like you said, up 11 games at the moment. Interesting stat you pointed out to me as well before we got on here. 29 games over 500, which has only been uh, twice the Brewers have done this before. And both times that they did that, it was in the last week of the year. So still got a lot of baseball to play when you think about it. And really impressive to see where the Brewers are sitting both in the standings and overall as their record. So as we consider and take a look further into, you know, some of the best teams the Brewers have built uh, over the years in the franchise. Of course, we've got 1982, uh, 2011, and 2018, probably the three best teams uh, besides this year. And so I want to just take a look and see how the Brewers stack up against these rosters. So first off, taking a look at 1982, five Hall of Famers, like you said, Ted Simmons, Raleigh Fingers in there, Don Sutton, and uh, Yount and Molitor as well. What are your thoughts, David, as you compare the Brewers' 2021 roster to the Brewers' uh, arguably most famous roster, of course, the 1982 Brewers? Well, I think the one thing that you have to consider is it is still a little bit difficult to compare them. This is a team that got to the seventh game of the World Series, Brewers are far from doing that right now, still uh, sitting where they are. Uh, it might be a more talented team, uh, but it is hard to say that the current Brewers are better than a team that was really just about one inning away from winning the World Series. They were in game seven, um, leading, I think, going into the sixth. And because of Raleigh Fingers' uh, injury, bullpen was a little bit thin already to begin with. Um, I, we were looking at, at some of the names in the bullpen. Fingers did have a very good year when healthy, um, but Jim Slayton, 3-2-9 ERA in 117 innings as kind of a swingman, did well. And Dwight Bernard, pretty good, 3-7-6 ERA. But outside of those two guys, uh, Pete Ladd ended up pitching some meaningful innings uh, in the playoffs, but he had a four ERA in just 18 innings in the regular season. Overall, we're thin in the bullpen, but it also was a different game. Uh, looking at the rotation, Mike Caldwell, 258 innings. Pete Vukovic, 223 innings. Don Sutton went and pitched seven games in the regular season after a trade, uh, 54 innings in those uh, those starts. So that's what an average of about seven and two-thirds innings a start um, for Sutton, who was 37 years old. Um, a different game, but I think you look at the pitching staff, clearly better now. But Harvey's Wallbangers is what they were known as. Uh, the offense I think far exceeds what they are currently. Um, you had Yown and Molitor at the top of the lineup. Uh, dynamic combination, Molitor leading off 
stole 41 bags that year, hit 302, uh, and Yount won MVP, had one of the best seasons of the whole decade in the 1980s. Um, I do think that at this point, the 80s team is better just because of the accomplishment of getting as far as they did. But I would not be surprised if when it's said and done, when this year is over, we say maybe this 2021 Brewers team is better than that 1982 team that uh, we seemingly celebrate every other year at, at Miller Park. <laughs> just about, just about. And like you mentioned, of course, they were known for their offense. First in the league in home runs, 216 home runs. Also first in the league in on-base, excuse me, in OPS and slugging. So a lot of power top to bottom in the lineup. Like you said, Molitor and Yount at the top. But you also had Ben Ogilvie, Gorman Thomas, Ted Simmons as well. So I, I certainly agree with you that the offense was better than it currently is. But I, I don't know. It, I mean, certainly if you look at it from an accomplishment perspective, of course, 82 is a better team. But I think if we look at the, the starting pitching and the bullpen, um, I think you can make the case that based on how the Brewers have handled the regular season, the Brewers should be a better team this year. You know, does that does that continue in the playoffs? Certainly we'll see. And like you said, Brewers starters, uh, besides Hauser's complete game shutout, you know, aren't going seven, eight, nine innings in a game as well. So there's also that when, when comparison, uh, comparing teams, you know, from 30 years apart. One thing I think to consider also is the Brewers play in what is probably the weakest division in baseball this year. Maybe you could say the AL Central is. Uh, is weaker, but it's not a really strong division. If you look back at the the AL East in the early 80s where the Brewers were playing, you were playing the Yankees who were coming off a, a World Series berth in 81 and still a very, very good team. The Tigers who ended up winning it all in 84, um, and they had that core there with Trammell and Whitaker and Jack Morris. The Orioles won in 83 with Ripken. Ripken won Rookie of the Year in 82. Um, and overall, I think I think they still had Frank Robinson, I want to say. Uh, although I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but but Baltimore had a very good team on the cusp of a World Series win. So they were playing in a very tough division in, in 82. Uh, and that could skew the regular season a little bit. When you get to the playoffs, that doesn't matter. That goes out the window. Um, but that's something I think that you could consider maybe in favor of the 82 team. Uh, and also, as I was looking through statistics, I just wanted to point out Charlie Moore in 1982 was two for 12 on stolen base attempts. I don't know why they let him steal uh, attempt steals 12 times um, if he only was successful twice. Uh, but I just thought it was noteworthy to point out uh, as as that's I feel like that's kind of something you wouldn't see nowadays on the analytics no. department. Even the manager would just tell you not to steal at that point. Um, but yeah, I. I don't know exactly who was behind that, but um, but I just thought it was kind of funny. That that is that's very notable. Two for twelve there, Charlie Moore on stolen bases in eighty-two. So as we as we take a look at another you know excellent Brewers roster, twenty eleven, very fun year. First thing I want to point out, of course, Ryan Braun, Prince Fielder, both of them had exceptional offensive years that year. But as we were taking a look at this prior to the episode here recording, really took a look at the Brewers starting rotation. You know, not exactly big names. Of course, we had Zach Grinke. Um, but Randy Wolf, Sean Markham, Chris Narvison, and Giovanni Gallardo. And the biggest thing that you pointed out was those guys all started nearly about 30 games apiece. Uh, so Brewers rotation stayed very healthy that year. Uh, it was 2011. We saw less injuries at the time uh, with pitching staffs, but really impressive. They were able to effectively maintain their rotation with just six guys, those five that I named earlier, and then Marco Estrada, who made uh, seven starts in place of Grinky and Narvison. So also Randy Wolf, 3.69 ERA in uh, over 200 innings as well. Certainly don't think of him doing that. I don't know exactly what he would be, what he was known for, but I think he was, I always think of him as like a back end four or five, eat some innings kind of guy. Didn't even really realize how strong of a year he really did have in 2011. And then of course the bullpen, John Axford was excellent that year, a sub two ERA. Some other old names, Cameron Lowe, Latroy Hawkins, K-Rod as well, another sub-2 ERA. He and Axford both uh, pretty good in that year. And Marco Estrada, uh, a swing man, like I mentioned, made seven starts uh, through over 90 innings for the Brewers. Uh, Tim Dillard also making uh, some appearances that year as well. But anything else that, David, you would note in the 2011 roster, especially as we compare that to what the Brewers roster looks like this year? I think the durability of that starting rotation is really what stands out to me because we know that the offense was really good. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what they were known for, kind of like that 1982 team. 
Uh, they were synonymous with scoring runs. Ryan Braun winning the MVP, hitting 332, slugging 597. Prince Fielder hit 38 home runs, 415 on base. I think that goes a little bit under the radar uh, because of how, how big he was. Um, but he hit for a high average, walked a lot. Ricky Weeks was really good that year. Uh, that was his his home run derby year. Um, so that, I would say that was probably Weeks' best year. Weeks actually just in town um, at the Brewer game this past weekend. Niger Morgan hit over 300 as well. Corey Hart slugged 510. So the offense was very good. It was there, and that was pretty well, well known, uh, well documented around the league. But Gallardo throwing over 200 innings, 352 ERA, uh, averaged one strikeout, or excuse me, nine strikeouts per nine innings. Uh, Sean Markham, you were mentioning, 200 innings, 354 ERA. And yeah, Randy Wolf. I did not realize how good Randy Wolf was. Uh, that year, I just looked, he averaged 88 miles an hour on his fastball, but a 369 ERA. Uh, and actually, his brother, Jim Wolf, who's a major league umpire, is working the Brewers Philly series right now uh, in Milwaukee. I remember he was uh, was an umpire even when Randy Wolf was playing. Uh, actually, Jim Wolf's umpiring debut came in a game that Randy Wolf uh, was was there at the game uh, on on the Phillies, um, but but I remember Jim Wolf wasn't allowed to be the home plate umpire when Randy Wolf was pitching. I remember that being a big talking point at the time. Uh, but Randy Wolf had an excellent year, even though he only had 134 Ks in 212 innings. Grinky very good as well. So. That's kind of what, what stands out to me. You look at now even, and of course, coming off a weird season, they're monitoring innings a little bit more. Um, but look at the current Brewers, and Woodruff is uh, is throwing, a, I would say, a kind of an ace-level load right now. But Freddie's sitting at about 125 innings. Burns at about 135. These are guys that, if they were pitching even 10 years ago, probably are throwing 220, 230 innings a year at least. Um, and we don't even want to get into what they would have been throwing in 1982. Um, Woodruff would be throwing with a torn UCL probably at this point. <laughs> um, but um, but it is interesting and I think extremely noteworthy of how good and how durable that 2011 pitching staff was. Yeah, they really were. Uh, you, you mentioned, of course, Ryan Braun's MVP season. I was taking a look at Prince Fielder, and like you said, he kind of flies under the radar. Um I did notice the 299 batting average. Am I recalling correctly? There were several several years in a row where he just missed hitting batting 300, like by literally a, a hit or two. I think so. I want to say that being kind of a, to a talking point. Yeah. Um, it looks like, yeah, in 09, he hit 299. In 2011, he hit 299 also with the Brewers. He had a couple two upper 280 seasons also um, thrown in there. So he did finally hit 300 when he was with the Tigers once and Rangers once. Um, but yeah, he did hit for a high average, even if he did hit that monumental 300 mark or not. He was a very good contact hitter. Yeah, he was a he was a great hitter all around, good on base guy. I was even looking, of course, Braun was known as the best offensive player for the Brewers that year. And I'm not saying that he wasn't, but Braun, of course, winning the MVP, 166 OPS plus, Prince Fielder, 164 OPS plus. So, you know, Fielder's season, no season, uh, nothing to sneeze at for sure. Um, and something that flies under the radar. Also, I do remember the the platoon, Niger Morgan, Carlos Gomez platoon out in center. Uh, that was a fun position. I don't know that there's a lot of um, positions, especially platoons, where you've got two high energy guys like Niger Morgan and Carlos Gomez. Fun to watch. Uh, that was also, I believe, the year when I got a chance to stand out with uh, Carlos Gomez during the national anthem as well. And I remember being really upset that it, it was Gomez starting that game and not Niger Morgan once I found out that uh, I was going out to center. Of course, turned out Gomez had the better career over the next uh, following years. But uh, interesting personalities in center. Also to note, Craig Council, of course, on the bench of that team as well. So again, another solid team, 2011 Brewers. Uh, final comparison we want to look at today, 2018 Brewers. Really not that long ago. Uh, some of the names, of course, Manny Pena uh, being there, Lorenzo Cain, Christian Yelich. Uh, I mentioned before, we got, again, before we got on, on recording here, Lorenzo Cain had a very good year that year. Of course, Christian Yelich, Aguilar as well. That Was that his all-star season, if I remember correctly? Yes, yeah. So some some bats there, Domingo off the bench, uh, which was a, a, a good uh, bat off the bench. And then Brewer starting rotation. Kind of similarly, not exactly a lot of big names there. Uh, what are your initial thoughts as we take a look at the 2018 Brewers roster? 
I think you look at the sheer amount of names uh, of players that were on the Brewers back in 2018. Uh, it seems like they shuffled through players super, uh, super often. Uh, even guys, Nick Franklin, Nottingham, Brett Phillips played just 15 games. Nate Orff, G-Man Choi, 12 games. Uh, Curtis Granderson was a big bench bat. At the end of the year, Jet Bandy played a little bit. At the beginning, I want to say Bandy actually started on opening day for the Brewers. Brad Miller, who just hit a home run against the Brewers today, um, played uh, played a little bit for the, the team that year. So they had a lot of guys, that, and even the pitching staff, uh, Jacob Barnes, um, who was and still is inconsistent, Mike Zagurski, J.J. Hoover, Alec Asher, Xavier Cedeno, Aaron Wilkerson, Boone Logan, Oliver Drake. I feel like these are, this is basically just an episode of random players of the day uh, going through these guys. Um, but they did end up kind of forming that team. I felt like more than any of the teams, I wasn't around in 82. Um, but even just looking at the roster, they only used 32 players in 1982. It was a different era, uh, but that's still very impressive. 2011, they kind of had that core together, that rotation we mentioned. But even the position players widely stayed healthy for the most part. Casey McGee was bad and ended up replacing him kind of with Hairston. Um, but that was about it. It seems like they were kind of just searching for answers on this 2018 team and really didn't find it until the end of the year. Um, even Brent Suter, I remember he was like an average starter in the first half that needed Tommy John. Peralta was inconsistent. They moved him to the bullpen towards the end. Wade Miley ended up being one of the best starters, but he even he struggled to stay healthy. And it wasn't really until the end in the playoffs that they finally hit their stride. Yeah, uh, certainly, like you said, kind of threw a lot of guys at the wall to see who was going to stick. And eventually, you know, came around to a point where they were able to, of course, put together a really good roster, 30 different pitchers appearing. I know that includes a couple position players that appeared during the during the season. But nonetheless, almost 30 pitchers the Brewers went through in, in just one season. Um, so certainly threw a lot at, at the Brewers roster and eventually were able to put together a good team. Corey Knable, Josh Hader, Jeremy Jeffress, three-headed monster in the bullpen. That was a lot of fun. Uh, guys like Chasin, Anderson, Guerra, I even Miley had a had a solid year that year as well. You know, able to go five six innings. Brewers had a two nothing lead, and you know that the, you're going to have to get through uh, Jeffress, Knable, and Hader in what was nearly impossible. So it was a fun team to watch. I, I that was really the first time the Brewers had a lights out bullpen, um, and I definitely remember enjoying watching that. Of course, Christian Yelich, great season as well. Uh, yeah, fun to watch. Travis Shaw. A uh, very good season with the Brewers that year as well. One thing also that I wanted to mention, um, or that that really is the separator, I think, or, or even maybe maybe not separator, but propels them into this discussion, is that bullpen. Uh, because I was I was talking about it with someone uh, recently, comparing these teams. That Brewers team, they had Corey Knable, who came back and I think at a zero ERA in September, and then it probably would have won NLCS. MVP had they won uh, the series. Um, whenever my arm hurts, I think about Corey Knable, who threw in all seven games of the NLCS that year, um, which I don't, <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> how he did that. Um, but and Hater, if you remember at that point, um, it was they'd go through the pitching probables and Wade Miley and a full rested Josh Hader um, or Gio Gonzalez, but Josh Hader is not available today. He was the guy that would come in in the fifth, sixth, seventh inning and pitch two or three innings uh, every other day. Jeremy Jeffress, who struggled in that postseason, he had one of the best Brewers relief seasons ever. One two nine ERA, 73 games. Uh, he was outstanding. Even like Dan Jennings, Xavier Cedeno were pretty good situational guys. And then in the playoffs, Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff both uh, ended up being pretty valuable bullpen members. Freddie Peralta and Junior Guerra, they combined to go like eight innings, seven innings, one run in that 15-inning game against the Dodgers. Joaquin Soria was that stable veteran guy, kind of like Brad Boxberger uh, for the Brewers in 2018. So that bullpen was so good. It was, it was really fun to watch. And I think that's kind of the only reason that they're still in this argument, because their best starter was Yolis Chassin, who nothing against him, but he was an average starter who pitched a lot, basically, um, through 192 innings, 3-5 ERA. Chase Anderson, I don't even know. I think they left him off the postseason roster, and he was 
maybe their two starter throughout the year, two or three starter. Zach Davies had a bad year. Wade Miley would go like three innings, one run in the playoffs. Gio Gonzalez would do the same thing. So it was really the bullpen that that kind of supported them. And then Christian Yelich, of course, um, who was who was basically unstoppable that second half. Yeah, the, the, like you said, the rotation, Chastin, Anderson, Guerra, Suter, and Miley. Miley was was effective. Like you said, he didn't pitch very much into the games, um, but he was pretty effective. But, yeah, to think that the Brewers were in the NLCS and really very, very close to making it to the World Series with a rotation of Chastin, Anderson, Guerra, Suter, and Miley um, against the Dodgers' star power is, is almost comical. But like you said, the Brewers' bullpen, Corey Canable. I forget about that NLCS. I, really, that was a playoff series for for the record. Um, if you look at all of Major League Baseball, a, a relief pitcher appearing in every game, uh, you know, in 2018, and and doing so with such success. I, I really wish that he could have won the MVP. I know, of course, wanted the Brewers to win the series in general, but he certainly deserved that, and he should be remembered more for that as a Brewer and really one of the best relievers that the Brewers have had in franchise history, frankly, if you think about it. Um, so certainly agreeing with you, bullpen, bullpen carried him. And then I, I just remember watching Christian Yelich's at-bats in 2018, which were just textbook. I don't know how pitchers even got him out. He was, you know, only swinging at good pitches, taking his walks and hitting for power. Certainly the center of the Brewers offense and a fun team to watch as well. So as we wrap up today, 82, 2011, 2018, 2021, which Brewers roster is the best of all time, David? I do think that 1982 team is probably still the best until they're unseated with a team that probably at least gets to the World Series because you have to look at both the regular season and the postseason. And I don't think that this team is so much better that you can already say that they're a better roster, a better team than that 82 team. Uh, but I, I would take the current Brewers over the 2011 team, over the 18 team, especially the 18 team. I felt like there was a lack of depth. And I almost think that Craig Council was the one who propelled them into that, uh, the spot that they did get to in 2018. Uh, of course, they still have Council, and, and I think he will do that still this year. Uh, but I, I would take the 82 team, but I do think the current Brewers are better than 2011 and 2018. I think I'd, I'd probably stand in a similar pl place. I do think that 2018, uh, as, as fun of a year as it has been to watch the Brewers uh, pitching staff dominate this year as well, I think there's just something fun about watching the bullpen dominate, especially late in games. And when the Brewers were able to get a lead in 2018, it, it was game over. So I, I would agree with you. Probably most fun team to watch, of course, wasn't around to watch 82, but 2011, 18, and 21. I'd have to go 2018 just because, like you said, council mixing and matching lefty matchups, Josh Hader, Knable, Jeffress. It was just a lot of fun. And certainly we'll see if, if the playoffs this year exceeds that and certainly hoping 21 Brewers able to at least make it to a World Series and who knows. So as we continue to move forward here, another topic that we wanted to discuss with it being September, we would normally be used to September call-ups, Ryan Braun's favorite, uh, as you know. Just want to take a brief segment to take a look at whether MLB should have kept September call-ups and the value that you potentially see in the September call-up. So what are your thoughts surrounding this? Well, I did enjoy the September call-ups a lot when we had them. And I would have to say that I do miss them to some degree. I understand at the same time why MLB thinks that maybe they weren't the best idea. Uh, I mean, you don't really have sports where uh, or any other sports where you just add players to your roster. Now it is different having minor leagues, but NFL doesn't add, add a, you know, uh, what is called practice squad um, players on at the end of the year. MLB actually used to have expanded rosters at the beginning of the year also. So in like in April, you would break camp with 30 players and then it would gradually go down to 25 by the end of April. Um, so that's a little bit on the other end of it. But I think there are some ways that, maybe MLB could have adjusted it uh, such that um, such that we still do have September call-ups. And also one thing that is kind of, uh, I, would, I don't know if I'd say plaguing the game, um, but isn't the best aspect of the game is the amount of up and down um, that there is with players, especially on the players, how difficult it is to go from AAA to majors, you know, maybe eight to 10 times in the year back and forth. Um, you think of 
of uh, guys that have been going up and down. Even Jace Peterson this year is finally establishing himself, but he was uh, outrighted. He went on waivers. Nobody claimed him earlier in the year, was optioned twice. Tim Lopes has been up and down a couple times, and the relievers are the ones that happen the most too. So I just want to give some ideas and um, what could we do to maybe improve that? Yeah, when you mentioned going back up and down, the two names that come to mind are Jacob Barnes and Taylor Williams, uh, certainly the last couple of years. I know they were often going up and down and then also being penalized for being used in games as well when the, the depth was thin and teams were forced to send down, you know, a reliever who may be one of their weaker relievers who pitched two innings the day before. He's not going to be available. They send him back down. Like you said, it, it takes a toll on them as a player. It's also just not very efficient or effective for Major League Baseball as well. So what are some of your ideas here as MLB looks to address the September call-ups? Yeah, the first one would be to give a bonus uh, to each, to a player, either for a call-up or for an option. Now, I think it'd be better if you have like a bonus every time they get called up, maybe five or $10,000, uh, enough where it gives incentive still. I think players are still going to be excited to go to the big leagues either way, even if it is their you know, 12th time going up and down. Um, I, I do think there is still an excitement to it, but I think having that extra bonus um, would help a little bit because having an extra five or $10,000 in cash certainly can't hurt uh, as kind of an incentive and kind of a way to, to mitigate and to offset the stress um, of having to find another place to live because um, the team will pay for, I think, your hotel room for the first week when you go up and down or when you get traded. But after that, you're on your own to find an apartment or a house. And if you're somebody who's been in the minor leagues for a long time, it's not like you have a lot of money where you can go out and, and spend some extra and find a, and a good apartment right away. Uh, usually finding apartments takes more than a week, especially when you're working full time and at the ballpark 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, so having that extra bonus, I think could be a way to do it. Um, another way to do it is also that the player receives major league pay for a minimum of say 10 days or a week or two weeks. Um, so even maybe, um, say, you know, some random reliever, Jacob Barnes in 2018 going up and down. Uh, let's say he gets called up on September 1st, uh, but the Brewers want to option him down already on September 6th. Uh, they can option him down, but then they still have to give him the major league pay for another five days to fulfill their 10-day obligation, maybe. Um, that's just one of the, one of the ideas I have um, to potentially help the minor leaguers out a little bit since um, Mark Atanasio is not really going to notice if uh, he has to give a few $10,000 bonuses, but that can go a long way for a minor leaguer going up and down. The second idea I have is a requirement to set the roster once per week, um, excluding injuries. So if Eduardo Escobar gets hurt midweek, uh, they can put him on the injured list, call someone up. Uh, but say Taylor Williams in, in 2018, going off the examples you gave, uh, let's say he has a bad outing or he pitches a lot on Thursday. Well, this is a roster they have. They can't option him out until Monday. Um, and then they can option him out on Monday. Also, one thing that makes it a little bit easier if they do that is all of minor league baseball is off on Mondays. So it would help for travel a little bit too with players going up and down, primarily on Sunday and Monday timeframe uh, going between the two places. Um, so that's another idea I would have. It also would eliminate the where you get penalized for pitching well or for pitching a while, like you, you had said. Um, I remember Tyler Wagner made his major league debut a few years ago against Arizona and the game went 17 innings and they were planning on keeping him on the roster, but they optioned him just because they needed another arm. Um, you kind of uh, avoid that uh, if you, if you set it up this way, unless that game happens to be on a Sunday uh, where of course it can happen, but, uh, but I think it, it could be a way uh, in a similar way to what the NFL does on a, a weekly basis with their games. The third way with directly with September call-ups that I have, the third idea would be to denote 26 active players per game, uh, even if you have expanded rosters. Um, so maybe you have some situational guys that you don't think you're going to use that day. Um, you could make it so you can't include starting pitchers, or maybe you do include starting pitchers. Uh, but essentially, you still have a big roster pool. You have a lot of guys that are making major league money. You have players who maybe are minor league journeymen who finally get their shot to be in the majors and they are on the roster uh, and they do play sometimes, but sometimes you say, well, 
they're probably not going to play today. Rather than having the 12 relievers pitch in one game, um, you still have the, the, the smaller pitching staff uh, and kind of what you'd standard, what you'd have uh, in a standard roster. Um, but then maybe you're a team that's out of contention like the Pirates. You want to give opportunities to different players. And this is the way to do it in September call-ups. Um, so that's, those are just a few of the ideas I have to address roster construction. One of them related to September call-ups and two of them related to players going up and down every day, every other day, uh, very often that, that, that MLB has addressed a little bit, but not much. One, one worry I would have if you had the 26 active players is you wouldn't have the opportunity for Aaron Ashby or Dave Bush to come in as a pinch runner. So that would certainly take away from the game. Um, I, that might outweigh the benefits. I'd have to uh, take further consideration, but interesting thoughts uh, around some of the uh, struggles that MLB faces with some of those issues you mentioned. I, I wouldn't mind the, the roster once a week. Uh, gives a little bit more stability, like you said, for some of those fringe players. And it's, I mean, it's it would just be a new rule, a new way to structure your your roster. It'd be a new way to structure your bullpen. You'd be less likely to necessarily burn out a guy, uh, have him go two innings, um, knowing that you could send him down the next day. It would just create uh, different strategies that managers would have to use. But I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that, as well as the bonuses. It's uh, not, of course, anything new to discuss paying minor leaguers more. And technically this doesn't pay minor leaguers more, but this pays, you know, fringe guys more. So I guess at least it's a start towards the right direction. There's no question that the minor leagues uh, need to be paid more. And I would be all for paying bonuses for these players each time they get called up. And like you said, I mean, if the Brewers need a guy, they're not going to, you know, leave him in AAA to save five grand, 10 grand. But it also does give a nice start for, the, the player coming up. So all valid ideas. Uh, once Manfred gives you a call, uh, feel free to give him some of those ideas. I think they're certainly worth considering. So final topic here today before we head out and answer our trivia question. Uh, the three of us, or three of us, you and I and uh, our friend in our uh, pretty much designated baseball group, group text were uh, debating whether the Brewers should continue on this hot streak that they've been on, well, for basically just about the whole season. Um, as they look at where the Brewers are going to stand amidst the standings. Do the Brewers want to be the best team in the National League? Of course, under normal circumstances, you do, but you've got the unique situation with the Dodgers and Giants fighting for the West. Padres uh, also pretty good team that may or may not be in the wildcard game. Uh, of course, with that one seed playing the wildcard winner, which could be the, the Dodgers or the Giants, both formidable opponents that the Brewers would probably likely rather face later on in the playoffs if at all. So what are your thoughts surrounding whether the Brewers want to be the top seed in the National League? Um, of course, you it'd be nice, you know, to be the one seed. Um, I think it's only only happened one time in uh, in franchise history or, or maybe 82 also. They hosted um, three out of the five games in the ALCS. Um, but it's, it's pretty rare to be able to be the one seed in your league. And so there's that initial attraction. But I think when you look a little bit deeper, it actually might be more advantageous to be the two seed. If they are the two seed, almost for sure they would play either Braves or Phillies or maybe Mets if they're able to uh, make a little bit of a comeback late in the year in, in terms of the standings. Uh, but either way, you're probably going to play one of those three NL, NL East teams, which are significantly weaker um, than one of the NL West teams, even than the Reds probably. And being able to be the two seed, you have an easier matchup, better chance of playing uh, a weaker opponent, and then you have a better shot of making it to the NLCS. And you will still have to face probably the Dodgers or Giants uh, in the NLCS, but you're going to have to either way uh, if you want to get to the World Series. Um, and so kind of maximizing their chance there, I think that it would be the better opportunity for the Brewers if they are the two seed. Now, of course, I'm not saying to, to only try to win some of the games. Um, you still try to win, but it almost might be better if they do end up with that two seed rather than the one seed. Right. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, we're not talking about benching Brewer starters in with the intention of trying to lose games. But when you look at it, you know, you're you're likely going to play either the Dodgers or the Giants at some point in the playoffs. You'd rather do it later, if po at all possible. I really don't understand why it isn't a rule where the one seed gets to pick their opponent. I, I To me, that seems like a very logical way 
to structure the playoffs. Number one seed, you know, you play, let the wild card game play. I get the logistics of it and maybe they wouldn't be able to, maybe you'd have to pick before the wild card game ended who you were playing for that, for the logistics of it, but giving the one seed the opportunity to select who they play. Cause if you're the commissioner or, you know, at major league baseball, you don't even want the brewers or any team to be looking at the standings going, wait a second, maybe we don't want to necessarily continue to win and continue to put our best guys out there all the time to try to get that top speed, top seed. Uh, I don't really understand why it's not utilized more in sports because I, again, it's a, incentives. And I think that giving the number one seed, the opportunity to select either playing the two seed first, the three seed first, or just say, Hey, you get to play the winner on the wild card. To me, that seems like a very logical way to structure the playoffs. And it's not something that I'm aware of exists among the major sports. Obviously it doesn't in major league baseball. I don't know if you have any thoughts around that or how you feel um, either on that personally or how you think players or managers would feel with that. There actually has been talk with us, something that they could implement long-term uh, in the new CBA that will expire this offseason. There will be a new one coming, um, and that'll be, I'm sure, some, something that we touch on in the offseason. But in the in the scenario, I think that was proposed going forward, uh, it, it would include a, a format where there are seven teams the one seed gets to choose out of the teams, I think. Well, one seed gets a buy, and then the two seed gets to pick um, among teams five through seven who they want to play. And then the three seed gets to pick, and then the four seed gets to pick. Now, it's more playoff teams than I would want. Uh, 14 teams out of the 30 is too much, in my opinion. Uh, to me, max it out at 12. But that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about um, the seeding and and would they do that? I, I think that there was talk even in 2020 that they were going to do that. Again, they did decided not to do that. Um, NBA, I'm kind of surprised, doesn't do that. Um, although NBA just seeds it by record. So uh, it doesn't matter if you, you could have the top three seeds all be from the same division. And they could be one, two, and three, um, even though only one team won the division. Um, nobody really cares about the divisions in the NBA anymore. You know, the Bucks won the, what is it, the... Eastern Conference Midwest Division or Central Division or something last year. They put a banner up and nobody really cares. Um, so it is different in other sports um, a little bit, but I don't think any of them exactly have it where the, the one seed gets to pick. But I do think that could be a, a way that incentivizes being the one seed. And they also used to have that rule where a team that's the one seed can't play the wild card if they're from the same division. Um, and I think they got rid of that when the new wildcard format came in back in 2012, I think it was. Um, so that could be something also that they look at is having that because then if you have two really good teams from the same division, they don't play each other in the division series. The only thing is then if you're the one seed and then you get stuck with the three seed who might be better than the wild card, um, and it, it, yeah, or then, then the two seed gets an advantage. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the way to do it either, but also I don't think in 2001 that they were going to have it where you pick who you want to play. Um, but I think that where we're at, where we're at now, um, that might be something that they should look into uh, and I think could be helpful for the sport uh, going forward. Yeah, the, the primary disadvantage that I see is just from a logistical standpoint. And of course, I don't understand this fully being just simply a fan of baseball, but I, I could understand that there, there is the nice aspect of uh, potentially knowing weeks in advance what the, the, the playoff matchup is. Typically, it's not decided until late, late in the year, but you're still going to have a couple of days to plan. Whereas if you have the selection process, maybe you either have to push back the playoffs a, a day or two um, or just figure out how to tighten up the logistics of it. So that's the biggest disadvantage that I see. But for, you know, of course, a major sport like Major League Baseball, if they really wanted to, they could find a way. So, you know, just something to consider. Uh, something that seems to make sense for me and somebody who would, of course, want to continue to compete at the highest level, try to be the best and align the interests and incentives with that. So certainly we'll see this offseason if anything like that comes to fruition. And as we wrap up here today, David, let's uh, circle back to our trivia question. question. Can you remind us uh, what that is today? Yeah, today's trivia question is about the Hall of Fame with Ted Simmons. Uh, being officially inducted on Wednesday, uh, including him. How many players are there in the Baseball Hall of Fame who have at once played for the Brewers? So that includes Ted Simmons. How many former Brewers in the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown? What is your guess on that one, Peter? 
not feeling super confident about this, but I'm going to go with, um, let's go with nine. That is a tad high, actually a seven. Um, huh. And so, of course, you got, to, let's see if I can name them off here. Okay. Let's see. So, of course, we got Yount and Molitor Fingers. We've got Don Sutton, Ted Simmons, all from that 82 team. We've got Hank Aaron. And then we've got Trevor Hoffman. That's correct. You got that. So I, pretty... see, I doubted myself because I, before, as the episode was going and I was thinking about the answer to it, I could list off all seven in my head, but I. And uh, sure enough, I actually, for once, had the trivia question right. Should I get, went with my gut. So there it is. Seven, seven players. I think that may change. I don't know. We'll see if uh, how some of the Brewers' careers continue to progress. And it'll be also interesting, a guy like Josh Hader. How does the Hall of Fame look at someone like Hader? And I know that he's not necessarily there yet. Um, of course, he's not necessarily. He's what is how he's 26. <laughs> he's not there yet. Been in the league a couple of years. But on the other hand, think about, you know, what relief pitcher has started his career off better than Josh Hader? Of course, there have been some, but not exactly a whole Hayrod, lot. maybe? Yeah. I mean, really, Hader has been one of the best relievers, um, at least up to his age. So you never know how relievers are going to age. Of course, now we look at injuries as well. Still very much a long shot, but I'd be curious to see what the Hall of Fame would would do, how they would look like. Look at a guy like Josh Hader as like, relief pitchers and the Hall of Fame has always been kind of a, I don't know, mixed bag. Of course, Trevor Hoffman and Mariano Rivera. Um, but then we've got like Lee Smith and, and is K-Rod a Hall of Famer? And I won't send us down this rabbit trail, but uh, relief pitching is kind of an interesting one in Cooperstown. That was a bit of a rabbit trail, but there you have it, seven. Uh, so I should have gone with the gut, seven Brewers. Um, who have appeared for the Brewers in Cooperstown. Any final thoughts here today, David, before we head out? Yeah, kind of going along that that Hall of Fame path, just briefly, not getting into a big debate, um, but a couple other names we could see. Christian Yelich actually sitting at 35 war right now. Generally, 60 is a threshold for a, a strong candidate, someone who could be considered. And Yelich is only 29, under contract for a while. And of course, he hasn't had a very good year this year or last year. But he's still someone that you expect to regain some of that form he had. And I think if he goes kind of back onto that path and then maybe a little bit gradually declines with age, he's somebody that could be a strong candidate. Um, I don't think Ryan Braun will get in. I think Yelich has a better path than Braun. Um, and I think the only way that Yelich doesn't surpass Braun um, is really if he continues to decline with the way he's playing right now or has played the last couple of years. Two other names I wanted to throw out there, CC Sabathia, only with the Brewers for half a year. But he's a strong candidate, over 3,000 strikeouts, I think about 250 wins, I want to say. Um, very good career. Don't I, do, do I remember correctly that he has most second most strikeouts among left-handed pitchers of all time? Um, so he, he wouldn't be top two because that would be Randy Johnson and Steve Carlton. Uh, but I'm I'm sure he's top five. That's right. That's um, right. I yeah, and, 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 and how do you how do you also weigh in, of course, his 2008 season? You know, what, what kind of weight do you put that on as arguably, you know, the best half season that we've ever seen from a starting pitcher as well? Like, how do you how do you weigh that in a Hall of Fame debate? You know, those numbers don't equal the same numbers of somebody who stretched it out mm -hmm. over two years. But again, not I, to get down. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, and he also won a Cy Young in 2007. Uh, so he had a very accomplished career. Zach Grinke, his career is not over, but he's looking like he'll probably end up in the Hall of Fame when it's all said and done. He's had an outstanding career. At, he is, I think, 37, 38, somewhere around there. Uh, but he's got a pretty good shot at the Hall of Fame, I think, um, especially with the way he's aged pretty well uh, and his skill set kind of bodes well to his, uh, his aging process. So there's just a couple names I wanted to throw out there. Um, along with the ones that we that we that we threw out, um, but that induction will be on Wednesday, twelve thirty Central. If you're interested in watching on MLB Network, I think it'll be live streamed online as well. Um, Ted Simmons going in, as well as Derek Jeter, Marvin Miller, um, who is um, no longer with us, and I'm not sure actually if his family members will be there on hand. Um, I know he talked about if he wasn't going to go in while he was alive, he didn't want to go in at all. And now that he passed six, seven years ago, I think around there, uh, his family may not be in attendance. And Larry Walker also going into the Hall of Fame. Um, these all members of the 2020 class, um, nobody from the 2021 class. 
Um, but they are all going to be inducted on Wednesday. Um, so be sure to tune in for that if you're able to. Um, always a great moment, a great day in Cooperstown uh, when a few players are added into baseball's Hall of Fame. Absolutely. absolutely. And it was uh, a fun, of course, uh, not the case this year, but fun ceremony to be there in person for for any baseball fan. Highly recommend doing it at least once in your life. Just kind of a bucket list item. You never know. You might just walk into uh, walk bump into Bob Costas on the on the street as well, speaking from a personal experience. But as we wrap up today, taking a look at what we're going to be covering next week uh, beyond the weekly recap, Brewers facing off. Uh, like you said, Brewers losing game one here today as we're recording this on Monday against the Phillies in a big blowout, 12-0. But two more remaining games at home against Philadelphia and then traveling for three on the road against the, Indi the Indians, well, Cleveland. Uh, and then uh, we will take a look at breaking down who should be on the postseason roster, which is always an interesting debate. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Keon Broxton definitely should be on the postseason roster. No bias at all in that. And then also another interesting debate this year, Corbin Burns or Brandon Woodruff? Who do you start in game one of the Brewers playoff series? Uh, Woodruff getting hit around a little bit. Her brother long ball today. And uh, Corbin Burns, that unfortunate uh, quote-unquote double that he gave up uh, the other day as well. So that'll be an interesting debate. I'm curious to hear David's thoughts on who he'd put out there in game one. Of course, both good options, but we'll be breaking down the Brewers postseason roster and the debate over Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff for game one. And finally, as uh, we wrap up here, David, your parting thoughts. So as we wrap up today, Brewers currently hold an 11-game divisional lead, the best in franchise history in our 29 games, over 500 atop the NL Central. All Brewers fans excited for September and to get to uh, what should be a very exciting playoffs. So as always, go Brewers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love if you would be willing to support our podcast financially. And you can find the link to do that down below in the episode notes through the Anchor app. Be sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com where you can find great articles and content there. And interact with us at Brewers Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks for listening and see you next week.